Well, please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. Acts 14. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, all, of, all 28 verses. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, you can find our text on page 923, 923. Uh, the, the sermon title is Mistaken Identities and Ministry, and the keywords for our worshipers in training, for our children who are, are listening for some keywords to make some tally marks by so they can pay attention, and parents, you can have help discussing the sermon with them later. Those keywords are witness, uh, tribulation, and grace. Today, we're picking up where we left off three Sundays ago. We have been working our way. Uh, it's good to know if you are a guest with us. We've been working our way through the book of Acts. And my last time in the pulpit was uh, three Sundays ago. We finished Acts 13. And so we're picking up in that story. Paul and Barnabas had been commissioned by the, the church in Syrian Antioch as missionaries. And they went down to Seleucia from Antioch. They sailed to Cyprus. They, they, they did some ministry there. It led to the conversion of a proconsul named uh, Ser, uh, Paulus, Sergius Paulus. And from there, they head on to a different Antioch. So it's a little confusing in Acts 13, 14 here as you're reading it. There's various mentions of Antioch. There's a Antioch in Syria and in Antioch in Pisidia. And so you have Syrian Antioch and uh, Pisidian Antioch. And they, this is where they've come in Acts 13, where we get a lengthy sermon from Paul aimed uh, particularly at the Jews in the synagogue there. But it was also the events of, of that day and those weeks led to the conversion of both Jews and Gentiles. But some of the Jewish leaders toward the end of Acts 13 they began to oppose Paul and essentially ran him and Barnabas out of the city, which brought them to Iconium. And today we'll read about Paul and Barnabas' endeavors in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, as well as their journey back through each city on their return to home base, to Syria and Antioch, to the church that had sent them out at the very beginning of Acts 13. Um, and there's a lot of places that we're mentioning. And so if, if having a, a, a picture in your head is, is helpful for you, then most of you probably have maps in the back of your Bibles that I would recommend you turn to at some point if it's useful to see Paul's missionary journeys. You can find Paul's first and second missionary journeys outlined in the back of your Bibles. If, if you don't have a Bible with that, a quick Google search will, will give you the outline and show you where he traveled here in Acts 13 and 14, and then in later chapters in Acts in his, his second missionary journey as well. Um, if that's not helpful to you, then don't worry about it, but I know for me it can be a little daunting to pay attention and focus through these chapters, not really having any sense of where these towns and cities are located in relationship to one another. So I want to make that resource uh, recommendation to you. So... Let's read the chapter, all of 14, then uh, we will outline it and get to work. So Acts 14, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way 
that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, Elisha, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So there are three things, three movements that I want you to observe with me in this passage this morning. First, in verses 1 through 7, we will see Paul in Barnabas in Iconium. Second, in verses 8 through 21, 
we'll see Paul and Barnabas down in Lystra and Derby. Third, in verses 22 through 28, we'll see them begin to return. We'll see their return journey to their home base in Syrian Antioch. So look with me in the first place at verses 1 through 7, where we see God bear witness to his word in their ministry in Iconium. Having arrived there, they enter the synagogue, we're told, and a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed at their words. And yet immediately, as we've seen through the book of Acts, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man at war, immediately the kingdom of man rears his ugly head. The unbelieving Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against them. Whatever exactly it was that they do, whatever it is they say, their intent is to drag them away from the true and living God, to drag them away from Christ. But Paul and Barnabas are undeterred. They remain for a long time, not just in spite of this persecution and this uh, uh, the persecution and the problems that were being raised by the, by the unbelieving Jews, but because of it. And so they, they were told that they speak boldly for the Lord in verse 3. But they're not alone in their speaking. The Lord Himself speaks by bearing witness to the word of His grace, by granting signs and wonders to them to be done by their hands. And yet, even at this, even at the signs and wonders that they performed, there was still division among the people. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. The Jews and Gentiles who had set themselves against the Lord, they conspired together with the rulers of Iconium to kill Paul and Barnabas. And yet, as Paul had in previous encounters with unbelieving Jews in his journeys, he learned of this plot, and so they flee to Lystra and Derby, and they continue to preach the gospel. So what do we do with these opening verses of Acts 14? Well, the first thing to see is that the war continues. The war between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God continues. As I said a moment ago, we've witnessed this all through the book of Acts. God's kingdom, it continues to spread despite the opposition from the kingdom of man. But the opposition is still there. It doesn't go away. Many Jews and Greeks did believe, and Paul and Barnabas did speak boldly for the Lord, and there were those who sided with the apostles, and yet there were some of them who were against them. And enough of them, or at least enough who had enough power, that they went so far to uh, bring up a mob to conspire to murder them. And yet we see how Paul responds. He learns of this plot. We don't know how. Was it a dream or a vision? Did God send him a prophet? Or did he learn of it in more normal ways? Right? Did one of the Jews accidentally text the wrong person? Did they... Did they intercept a message somehow? Did, did one of the Jews defect and go and run to tell Paul about it? it we don't know. In, in some ways, it doesn't matter because what we have to grapple with is what or whom is, who is it that stands behind 
this information being relayed to Paul. It is, of course, God Himself. God has continually cared for Paul throughout all of his endeavors. In chapter 9, verse 23, the Jews plotted in Damascus to kill Paul, but he became aware of it and he escaped. In 929, the Hellenists in Jerusalem wanted to kill him, but the brothers learned of it and sent him off to Tarsus. And here again in 14.6, they learn of this plan that they have to kill Paul. The Jews are either really bad at keeping their conspiracy plans a secret, or Paul is a great detective, or God is at work. It could be all three of those things, I suppose. But we know for certain, as good Christians reading our Bibles well, that God is at work. God is the main character of the Bible. He's the main character of the book of Acts. By character, of course, I don't mean a made-up character story. But He is front and center of every page. And so here's the lesson, to one of the lessons to learn from these opening verses God preserves His messenger for His appointed purposes. Until it was time, no one could lay a hand on Paul. We learn a different lesson about that in the following verses. But in these opening verses, Paul once again escapes. But there's another lesson in these opening seven verses that I want us to see. And it's this. Signs and wonders are not sufficient to convince unbelievers of the truth of the Gospel. Yes, signs and wonders God did grant to Moses and to Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament in particular. And He granted them to the apostles. And they all, each of those marked out new periods of divine revelation. They served to bear witness to the truth of what these men were saying as the very mouthpieces of God, as God was revealing Himself savingly in special revelation as it's written down and collected into this book, the Bible. But as we see here, even the signs and wonders that Paul and Barnabas were able to do here left the city very divided. Now Luke has already made a point similar to this in his Gospel. Think about Luke 16, verses 19-31, through 31, where Jesus teaches about the rich man and Lazarus. For time, I can't read or, or even really recap the whole story because the story in and of itself is not germane to this point. But the end of that story, the conclusion of that story, is what matters here. The story ends with the rich man being told in no uncertain terms that for those who will not believe Moses and the prophets, witnessing someone rise from the dead will not do them any good either. And so the question for us is, do do we appreciate what we have in this book? Do we appreciate the, the fact that we have Moses and the prophets and the apostles? Do we appreciate that God has spoken fully and finally in His Son and that God has preserved that gospel, that saving message in this book? If Moses and the prophets were enough 
to bring someone to saving faith, how much more so now that we have the completed canon of Scripture? I think it's very important that we not let ourselves believe the notion that we just need a little bit more proof. That's a very popular, common uh, objection in our day, right? You hear people say something like, you know, if Jesus would just appear before me right now, then I could believe. No. The skeptic who says that is just as likely to respond like the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles in Iconium and reject it utterly. Or, as we'll see, he's just as likely to respond as the folks in Lystra and think, the gods walk among us and get it wrong altogether. And so, my friend, if, if you are here this morning and, and you, you ever have or you, or you find yourself even now doubting the message of the cross and the message of the empty tomb, if you're waiting for Jesus to show up and do something miraculous by your standards, you should know He already has. Someone did already rise from the dead. Signs and wonders have already been performed. And the Bible wants you to know that if these things aren't enough for you, what will be? And so I I entreat you and myself, all of us here, let's stop demanding things of God. Let's start submitting ourselves to His loving care, casting ourselves wholly upon Him. In other words, if you don't know Christ, believe and He is yours. So those are a few lessons, a couple lessons from these first seven verses. What about verses 8 through 21? Look with me here in the second place where we see Paul and Barnabas in their ministry down in Lystra and Derby. When they arrive at Lystra, we're told, Paul begins to speak as his custom. And uh, there was a lifelong crippled man listening to him. And Paul looks intently at him. And what does he discern? Faith. And so he exhorts the man, stand up. And the man springs to his feet and begins walking about. As in Iconium, we see Paul and Barnabas, we see their ministry marked by these signs and wonders. But we also see that the signs and wonders in themselves weren't enough to convert anybody. Iconium, they rejected it outright. Lystra, they run in the complete wrong direction with this miracle. They get it all wrong. The crowds begin to hail Paul and Barnabas as gods, specifically as Hermes and Zeus of the Greek pantheon. It's like there was a, there were, Ovid, about 50 years earlier than this, had written a poem about the judgment coming upon neighboring towns for their rejection of, of Zeus and Hermes. So it's likely that the, the people here are in, uh, they're, they're hypersensitive to this type of thing. And so the priests of Zeus are bringing out their sacrifices to offer. They don't, they don't want to get it wrong. They're worried about what will happen for, to them if they miss it. Why don't you think for a minute, 
does this sound familiar at all? This, a crowd hailing a great speaker as a god. Maybe it reminds you, if you've been here with us, it certainly would remind you of another proclamation of deity in Luke's account in this book. What about Herod in Acts 12? Remember, Herod gives a lengthy speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And what do the people do? They begin to shout, the voice of a God and not a man. What What does Herod do? Give it to me, he says. He didn't give God glory, and so God struck him dead. And he was eaten by worms. Paul and Barnabas have a decidedly different response. When they learn of this adulation, when they hear of what what the people are saying, they immediately tear their clothes and they begin pleading with the people, knock it off! Why are you doing these things? They asked. We're also men. We're men just like you. Same nature as yours. But we bring you good news. Not news about ourselves, but news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They go on and they acknowledge that there was a time in the past God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, but even then He didn't didn't leave Himself without a witness. The heavens declare the glory of God. Despite their rebellion against Him, God, from the heavens, gave Him rain. He gave them fruitful seasons. He satisfied their hearts with food and gladness. In all of it, God was saying, listen up! Look up! Stop looking to yourselves, dear people! But we know the hardness of human heart and we see it on display here. Even with this reminder. Even with this clarifying description that Paul gives. Hey, the the good things you have in this life, in this world, they're all from God. But even with the description, even with that explanation, the, the words have very little effect on the idolatry of the people of Lystra. We're told in verse 18, they continued to offer sacrifices to them. It, it, maybe some of them stopped, but it, it scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices. They were so eager to run after another god. Well, if that's bad, things take a turn from the bad to the worse very quickly. The Jews from Pisidian Antioch had gone over to Iconium. They rallied the troops there. And then the the unbelieving Jews from now Antioch and Iconium, they've come down to Lystra. And they convince the crowds to stone Paul. And they drag him out of the city. And they leave him for dead. In God's providence, Paul was allowed to be stoned this time. Fourth time's the charm, I suppose, but he doesn't die. Staggeringly, he doesn't die. I, I don't know if you've ever been hit with a rock in any way, like a small rock, but it really hurts. And so imagine rocks of all sizes being hurled at your head, 
until you're unconscious. He's left for dead. And yet, he rises up as, his, as the disciples of Jesus gather around him. And even more staggeringly, as shocking as it is that he's not dead, he stands up and does what? Enters the city. Verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. He went back into Lystra, the place where he'd just been dragged out of, left for dead after being stoned nearly to death. And the very next day, they move on to Derby and preach the gospel there. Bold. The courage of Paul is remarkable and instructive here. Should we not wish to have the same kind of valor in the face of such persecution? How many of us, seriously, think about it, how many of us could preach the gospel be nearly stoned to death, and then the same night go back into the same place where the people stoned you, spend the night, and then the next day set out on a 75-mile journey to another town nearby to start preaching the Gospel as soon as you get there. I don't know about you, but I would take some time off. But not Paul. But that's not because we're meant to give Paul any glory. He would hate that. It's not Paul's strength that he's operating in here. It's God's. And so, brothers and sisters, what obstacles are you facing? Maybe no one is beating you to death, leaving you for dead. But what is it that plagues you this day? What trouble do you have? I pray that you would entrust yourself to God, whatever it is. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about his sufferings as an apostle. And in chapter 12 of that book, he mentions a thorn in the flesh that he pleaded with God three times that he would remove it. Three times God refused, but his reply wasn't simply refusal. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul's conclusion, the end of those two chapters, that he will all the more gladly boast in his weakness. So whatever you're facing, be weak. Christ is strong enough. Well, after preaching in Derby, making many disciples, they begin to head back. Head back home, in a way. Look with me in the third place, verses 22 through 28. Really, rather, 21 through through 28 here. Um, They've preached in Derby, they've made many disciples. And then they set back out, heading ultimately to Syrian Antioch from where they began their journey in chapter 13, verse 3. And we're told they passed back through Lystra. Would have been easy to skip, probably, for Paul, but he didn't. They passed back through Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. And all along the way, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples that they had made in those cities. And the strengthening consisted really of of two things primarily. Primarily. One, they told them that they needed to continue in the faith. 
giving them this reminder, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul Stoning certainly would have been on the forefront of many people's minds. And they would have needed encouragement. What would Paul have looked like? Perhaps it depends on how long he was at Derby, but imagine he, he looked a little rough. And so the message that they needed to hear is, friends, the kingdom of God, it doesn't grow only in the absence of suffering. In fact, what we've seen over and over in this book and what we'll continue to see is that the kingdom of God grows not just in the presence of suffering, but it grows because of suffering. Think about it. It was the persecution of Acts 7 that led to the inclusion of the Samaritans in Acts 8, as well as the inclusion of the Gentiles in Acts 11. It was the persecution of Herod in Acts 12 that led to the exhortation of the brothers and the increase of God's Word at the end of Acts 12. It was the persecution of Bar-Jesus that led to the proconsul's faith in Acts 13. It was the persecution of the Jews in 1345 that led to the inclusion of the Gentiles in 1346. It was the persecution of the Jews in 1350 that led Paul and Barnabas to move on to Iconium. It was the per- persecution there in 145 that led them to move to Lystra in 146. And it was the per- persecution there in 1419 that led them to move on to Derby in 1420. So what's the point? The kingdom of God grows through tribulation and persecution. You know, we're never told to seek out suffering, to pray for pain and agony, but we can and we must have it settled in our hearts that tribulation in a fallen world, it just comes our way. But suffering, sorrows, and persecution for the people of God, they are not hindrances to entering the kingdom of God. They are doorways. And so we see the significance of suffering in our lives here in the encouragement that Paul and Barnabas offered to them. But we also see this in verse 23, a second aspect of their encouragement. Luke writes, They appointed elders in every church and prayed and fasted and committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul was leaving. He was on to other things, but he did not leave them as sheep without shepherds. Paul left behind him always churches. Not just little bands of individual Christians, but he left churches behind with qualified local leadership. But they continue on. They pass through Pisidia. They came to Pamphylia. They they go over to uh, Italia and they sail back to home base from there where they were commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And there, when they get back to home base, they report to their sending church all that God had done with them. How He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a good deal of time with them. And really, in in verses 24 through 28, what I want you to see here is just to focus in on verse 27. 
they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened this door of faith. Again, we ask, in whose power did the gospel advance in Acts 13 and 14? Was it Paul? Barnabas? Was it their great skills of oratory? Was Paul just so charismatic? Was Barnabas just such a likable guy? Was it all their learning and persuasive speech? No. It was the Lord. It was God who worked. It was God who opened a door. It wasn't the greatness of Paul or the goodness of the Gentiles that brought about this good report. It was the grace of God. And so, in closing, what about us? What do we think about this text as a whole and particularly this question at the end of of power? You know, God is doing some really great things here. We, We got to witness... Some of that this morning in, in y'all's baptisms. God is doing really remarkable things here. He's, he's breaking us in our comfort and He is comforting us in our brokenness. He's adding to our numbers day by day or week by week, month by month, those who are being saved. In the midst of all of it, as a church, I'm firmly convinced that He's keeping us unified And do we get any credit for this good report? No. To God alone be the glory. So brothers and sisters, take heart. The kingdom of God continues to advance today just like it did then. God continues to witness to the word of His grace. Even if not by signs and wonders anymore, now that we have a completed canon, but He still bears witness through the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by and with the Word preached. As you hear the Word this morning, you know that it is true. And so yes, we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, but the same Lord who cared for the believers at Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and all of these other places, that same Lord to whom they were committed and whom they believed is the same Lord who cares for us to whom we are committed in whom we have believed. And so let us tell one another what God's doing. Over at lunch today, tell people what God's doing in your life. Hard things and easy things. Sad things and joyful things. Share yourselves with one another. And let us give thanks to God and glory in His name alone.